Well, good morning, Redemption Bible Church. It is a delight to be with you this morning and to bring God's Word to you. Would you open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11 and also to the book of Acts chapter 2, as we will be in both texts this morning. And as you are turning there, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people immigrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Would you now flip over to Acts chapter 2, also starting in verse 1. Now when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fergia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. You may be seated, and would you pray with me this morning? Our great Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmingly thankful for your word in which you have revealed yourself to us, in which you point us to as the source of all life. Lord, it's a a delight to come before you this morning and to be able to know you more to hear about the story that you have written from the very beginning of creation until the day when Christ returns. And so, Lord, as we, as we dig into your word this morning and as we see your heart for the nations, 
May we be moved to reflect upon that and to take those words and make them become action. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified, that any words that I might speak uh, would not be my own words, but that would be words that come solely from your spirit. Lord, bless this reading of your word, and may our time together be fruitful. It's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen. In the year 1436, in the city of Mainz, Germany, there was a young goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg who invented a device that would forever change the scope of human history. Using metal alloy typefaces, he invented, of course, what we have come to, be, have come to call the printing press. With this one device, books which at one point, up until that point in history, had to be copiously written uh, with, with great detail by hand, could now be printed en masse. And of course, the only book that ever actually came out of Gutenberg's shop was the Word of God. At that point, the Bible was in the Latin language. In the early 1500s, moving forward a little bit in history, there was a Roman Catholic theologian named Desiderius Erasmus who compiled various Greek manuscripts into a single text. And then this manuscript uh, compilation fell into the hands of one young monk named Martin Luther, who then took Erasmus's text and translated the Greek into German. And of course, this would have been scandalous at that point in time, whereas the Latin language was the language of the clergy, the language of the church that only the pastors and priests had access to, and where the members of the congregations didn't have any idea what was being said when they went and attended the Mass. Now the Bible was present in the language of the common people. From then, uh, in the mid-16th century, as the Reformation swept throughout Europe, uh, uh, German Lutheran monks landed on the shore of a small North Atlantic island called Iceland. And of course, then when the Reformation arrived, uh, the bishops there decided we probably need a Bible in our language as well. And so in 1584, the Bible was translated into Icelandic by Bishop Guthbrander Thorlaxen, and since then, the Bible has also been present in the Icelandic language. So from the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation, when the, the dawning of the light within Europe shone forth, the, the Reformers had a conviction that the people needed the Word of God in their own language. They needed to remove it from under the sole authority of the church elite so that men and women, young and old, could read the Word of God for themselves and that the power of the gospel, the Word of God, would permeate their lives. And from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 11, we see that language has been used by God throughout the course of redemptive history to save for himself a people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. And so this morning, as we dig into these two texts that we have, uh, have read this morning together, it is my hope that we see this grand redemptive historical theme of how God has used both the dividing and the reuniting of language to save for himself his people from the ends of the earth. So as we dig into Genesis chapter 10, if you look just the one chapter uh, before it, Genesis chapter 10 is frequently called the table of nations. 
After the flood, we see the lineage of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And chapter 10 records how they spread out after the flood. They go to different areas of the world. And of course, if we recall God's initial command to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then after the flood, God once again gives this command to Noah and to his family that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would fill the earth and subdue it. But of course, mankind in their rebellion, even though the flood had taken place and the righteous line of Noah had gone forth as the only family, clearly this was not the answer to the question and this was not the solution to the problem of mankind's sin. As we dig into chapter 11, verse 1, again it says, now the earth had one language and the same words. So we see that though Noah and his sons had, given the, had been given the command to be fruitful and to multiply, and in Genesis 10 tells us that they did that, chapter 11 zooms back in onto why and how this needed to take place. If you look again at Genesis 10, verse 25, there's uh, an individual in the line of Noah whose name is Peleg. And it says that in the days of Peleg, his, uh, the, the, the world was divided. It says the earth was divided. And so scholars typically assume that in the days of Peleg refers to in the days of Babel, when the earth was divided between languages. And if that is correct, and there's no reason why that doesn't seem to be accurate, this would mean that Babel takes place four generations after the flood. So we have Noah, his sons, grandsons, and Peleg is a great-grandson of Noah. And so, as, they, uh, as the Word of God says, as they migrate from the east and throughout the entire book of Genesis, when we see this phrase, moving east, symbolically moving east of Eden, this represents all throughout the story of the patriarchs of moving out of the presence of God. So the people are, as a, as a whole, moving farther east, farther out of the presence of God, and they come into a land that says, in the plain, in the land of Shinar. Uh, historians have pointed to uh, the land of Shinar as possibly and probably being um, what we call Mesopotamia, uh, the, the very first human civilization, which means the land between two rivers. And Shinar is actually the Hebrew word for the oldest language that we know of as human beings, which was Sumerian. So again, we see that, uh, that scholarly history and discovery just once again points to the fact that God's word has had the truth this whole time. So though Mesopotamia, the cradle of human civilization, we can trace all of that back to this very day in Babel. And the people say to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And if we can put ourselves into the mindset of these people, as their, their great-grandfather Noah was still with them and still alive in the days of Babel, you can only imagine the story of the flood that they all were very familiar with. The story of the floodwaters that rose and wiped out the entire human population of the earth, aside from Noah and his family. And so why do they build a tower? Could it be that they are once again trying to not only make a name for themselves, but are trying to escape the coming judgment of God? Though God had promised to never again flood the earth, 
the Word of God says that they seek to build a tower into the heavens as a way of not only reaching God by their own works, but also as a way of protecting themselves from the judgment of God, lest he seek to destroy them once again. They build a tower as tall as they can so that God's judgment might be avoided. They say, let us make a name for ourselves as they seek to build this tower, which reveals to us just the foolishness of human pride, right? Of course, we know from this text that at this point, they are the only humans on the planet. They're the only living human beings left alive. So who are they making a name for themselves before? Of course, the only other character in in this story is God himself. It's as though they are making a name for themselves before Almighty God, saying, you think you know what you can tell us to do, but we are the rulers of this world. So they try to make a name for themselves by building this tower into the heavens as a mark of just rash arrogance and defiance against God and against his judgment. And they know exactly why they are doing this too. And the text tells us in verse 4, it says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They know full well what God has commanded them to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And yet they say, no, we're going to build this tower for the sole purpose of that we may not be dispersed over the face of the earth. One commentator uh, said that every government that seeks to build an empire requires two things, a center of unity and a motive for expansion. And we see this certainly in the people of Babel. They have a center of unity. They have this tower that is standing as their pride, as their testimony to their greatness. And they have a motive for expansion. They have a motive for remaining together and growing this culture so that they might boast before God of their greatness and escape his judgment. But of course, God, in his sovereignty, knows that this shall not be the case. Look at verse 5. and note, Just note the humor that the word of God has here. The Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. As they sought to build this tower so big that it pierced the heavens, God must come down from his throne in order to even see what they are trying to do. So he comes down and he walks among the people and he recognizes and says in verse 6, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. As believers, we we cannot read this as God sort of saying, oh no, what what am I going to do? Right? This is God in his, truly, in his, his grace. He recognizes the fallenness of his creation. He recognizes the total depravity of Adam and Adam's line. The sinfulness of the human heart is so deep that if these people do remain together, they truly will pursue their sin as far as it can take them. God has his perfect wisdom and understands the depth of mankind's depravity and knows full well that if civilization and these people are not separated, that it will just plunge them into idolatry and into sinfulness. Note here the parallel. 
Right? When we, uh, read, we read in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin by eating the fruit, this is what Genesis chapter 3 says. This is his response. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, and therefore God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. And we read that as judgment. And though that is judgment upon Adam and Eve, it is also grace and mercy. For if God had allowed them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state, there would have been no opportunity for reconciliation. So God kicks them out of the garden as a means of propelling forth the redemptive story. And here we see Babel is the same situation. Though him dividing the languages is a means of his judgment upon the people, it is also a means of his protection from themselves. He, in his grace, acts in a way that, uh, and, and acts within human history so that these people will not continue to pursue their own depravity and their own sinfulness. So God comes down and he says, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may no longer understand one another's speech. And the result of this, of course, we see in verse 8 and 9. After the Lord disperses them over the face of the earth, after he confuses their language, it says they left off building the city. Right? Though this is the the sole task that the people of Babel are pursuing, though this is the very thing that they are focusing all of their efforts on, God thwarts the passionate plans of mankind if it is not within his sovereign will for them to do so. And so, of course, it is named Babel. And all throughout the rest of Scripture, we see this metaphor and this imagery of Babel being used to represent mankind's corporate rebellion against God. We have the Babylonian Empire. In Revelation, Babel is used as an image of uh, sinful, rebellious human government. And even our English word Babel denotes unintelligible speech. So the Lord disperses, uh, disperses all of them over the face of the earth. And this is leading forward into the next phase of redemptive history. So let's pause here and, and reflect upon the events of Genesis chapter 11. Let's think about Babel in the context of us being new covenant believers, being able to look back at God's word and, and, and see through his revelation what he was doing. So five questions we should answer as we think about Babel. The where, the when, the who, the what, and the why. So where does this take place? Take place, as it says, in the plains of Shinar, the very cradle of civilization and the birthplace of human culture, which this one place on this earth then propels all of human history forward and the entire history of every culture of mankind traces back to this very moment. As we look at the world around us today, uh, scholars and linguists estimate that there are around 7,100 different language groups today. And all of them trace their roots back to this plain in Shinar, where the people tried to rebel against God. When does this take place? Well, as we mentioned, 
Uh, Babel takes place chronologically right after the flood of Noah, which demonstrates to us that although Noah was in some sense the savior of mankind of his day, he was not the ultimate savior. There was still a Messiah that yet needed to come because clearly mankind's rebellion had not yet been dealt with once and for all. Noah was an image of the Messiah, but he was not the one. He was not the seed of the woman who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Who was present here at Babel? Well, this is all of humanity. This is uh, the ancestors of every single culture, which demonstrates to us that there, there is no culture in this world that somehow is better than another. There is no culture or uh, ethnicity that can claim to have more superiority over one another. And this isn't something we should be proud of because this means that every culture is equally guilty of sin and every culture is equally needy of the gospel message. I am just as guilty of the sin of my forefathers of Adam and I am equally as guilty as every other individual in this world. Every culture is influenced and infected by the sin of Adam and Eve. What, what results from this? Of course, we see here the nature of all of the strife of all of the cultures of the world, again, trace their roots back to this very moment of Babel. As the people could not understand one another, we can only imagine what must have taken place when the tongues and the languages of the people were confused and they could no longer work together. And therefore, they spread out according to how they were able to, to understand one another. And we see each culture trace its roots back to this day. And so as cultures develop values and beliefs and norms and rituals and symbols and languages, all of these sacred elements that each culture values highly, again, trace their roots right back to this moment of God's judgment. And as, as I mentioned, as, as New Covenant believers, as those living on the other side of Christ's coming, we can look back to, to Babel and see exactly why God did this. As the Babylonian, or as the, the events of Babel propel redemptive history forward, we then see in Genesis chapter 12, God focusing his purposes and his plan and his uh, interaction with one single man, with one single family line. We see the call of Abram directly following the events of Babel. And so while the first 11 chapters from the dawn of creation to the events of Babel uh, cover approximately 2,000 years of human history, the rest of the entire Old Covenant, the Old Testament text, focuses in on one culture, on one nation, on one specific people group. Of course, finding their roots in one man named Abraham. And so we see, tracing from Babel, to the very end of the Old Testament, we see Israel becoming God's people. We see the kingdom. We see the wilderness. We see the exodus, the judges, the kings, and the prophets. And all of them pointing forward to the fact that there was still a Messiah yet to come. 
And even as we read through the Old Testament and see God specifically dealing with the nation of Israel as his covenant people, there, of course, was also this idea of the sojourner and the God-fearer, those from other cultures who would rejoice and, uh, and, and come under the rule of Yahweh as their God. And so then, of course, we know as believers, we know the penultimate moment when the Messiah finally steps on the scene. The greater Noah, the greater Moses, the greater David, the greater Abraham, the one to whom all of the patriarchs and the entire history of Israel pointed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The one who took upon himself the sins of all of his people, who died, was buried, and the third day was resurrected. And then, of course, we know that's also not the end of the story. Because God, or Christ then, uh, after his resurrection, he appeared to the disciples. He fellowshiped with them, and then he told them, Go to Jerusalem and wait, for I will send you a helper. And so the disciples, after spending time with the resurrected Christ, after having received the Great Commission, of course, as we call Matthew 28, to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, they get, then go to Jerusalem to wait for this promised helper that Christ would send after he ascended back to the Father. And so here we pick up at Acts chapter 2. And this story picks up uh, with the disciples there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It's Pentecost, uh, a Jewish feast that took place 50 days after the feast of Passover, which of course we know Passover pointing to the ultimate sacrificial lamb, uh, Christ himself. And so here we have the ultimate Pentecost. Uh, some, some translations, your translation might say when the day of Pentecost arrived, but some translations actually say when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. I personally appreciate that, that translation as it points to the fact that just as the Passover had been fulfilled through the death of Christ, now we have the final and the ultimate Pentecost as the Spirit comes and ascends upon his people. And so again, similar to the days of Babel, look at verse 1 in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So once again, just as the people of Babel were congregated all together, now we have the disciples all together in one place waiting for the promised coming of the helper from Christ. And there comes from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire house where they were sitting, and these divided tongues come down and rest upon each one of the disciples. And so as they were all together, and these tongues come down, and again, note this word divided, as we've seen this already in Genesis chapter 11 and in Genesis chapter 10. So here, this word divided tongues is the same word in the Greek text that is used again to translate Peleg's name in Genesis chapter 10. So it's as though it's symbolically pointing to this division at Babel now being undone on the day of Pentecost through these divided tongues that come down to reunite the fellowship of Christ, to reunite believers from every tribe and tongue. So these tongues of fire come down and, and rest upon the disciples of Christ. 
And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit, we see through the testimony of Scripture, the Holy Spirit was not a promise. The Holy Spirit would come down and rest upon certain people. Um, the first two individuals in Scripture that we see who are filled with the Holy Spirit uh, are, called, are named Bezalel and Aholiab, who were uh, given the Spirit, it says in, uh, in the, the Pentateuch, um, for the very purposes of constructing the tabernacle and furnishing it according to God's plans. Uh, likewise, there is uh, Eldad and Medad in the time of Moses. Uh, and Joshua comes to Moses and says, please stop Eldad and Medad for prophesying. Tell them to stop. And Moses responds to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? And, and Moses says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. So under the old covenant times, under the, the administration of the old covenant the Spirit would come and then also depart from people. We know Samson. We know Saul. These men who for one time had the Holy Spirit, but then it would depart. But then in the prophetic fulfillment, as Peter goes on in Acts chapter 2 and preaches and declares that this is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, that all of God's people, men and women, sons and daughters, would have the Holy Spirit outpoured upon them and that they would be able to proclaim the mighty works of God. So we see here this great fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 who says, in these last days, the Spirit shall come and descend upon the people. And these disciples, as they receive these divided tongues, they begin to speak in languages as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance. And so unlike Babel, which was wholly a, an attempt at mankind to boast in and of themselves, the events here at Pentecost are certainly nothing that mankind in and of himself could do. This must be the power of God to give these disciples this ability to speak in languages that they did not know. Look at verse 5, and, and it's as it talks about those who were present in Jerusalem on this day of Pentecost. And it, it lists off these, these uh, groups of people that it says in verse 5, it says, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, some uh, unbelieving scholars sometimes look at this, and this is just one of the many ways that they try to say, well, God's word or the, the, the Bible must be in error here. Right? Certainly there weren't men from every nation under heaven. Certainly there weren't Chinese and Native Americans and people from all over. There's no way that there truly were uh, people from every nation under heaven present here on this day. And though, therefore they say they have uh, disproven the word of God. But if you uh, take a map of all of these nations and people groups that are listed here in Acts chapter 2, and you put that over a map of the table of nations found in Genesis chapter 10, uh, disting distinguishing the lines of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, they match perfectly. So again, this pointing back, for, back to uh, this fulfillment and uh, reversal of the judgment of Babel on the day of Pentecost. When uh, scripture says every nation, un of, uh, every nation under heaven, it is referring back once again to this table of nations as we see uh, all of the cultures coming back together. 
And of course, as the disciples begin to speak in these languages, the words that Acts 2 say just reveal to us that they have no idea what is going on. It says they were bewildered, amazed, astonished, and they are all hearing the, the proclamation of the mighty works of God in their own native tongue. And of course, the disciples, I mean, these are men all from the same obscure area in Galilee, all speaking the same language, all of them having one common tongue, and yet they somehow are able to uh, instantly know these languages and proclaim the words of God. And again here, it says that they both are Jews and proselytes here on the day of Pentecost. So there are not only ethnic Jews, but there are also Gentiles who have been grafted into the people of God, hearing the word of God proclaimed in their own language. So there's this, this redemptive shift from uh, the, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant focusing uh, specifically on the nation of Israel, and now the kingdom of, of God is going to expand to the ends of the earth. They hear the mighty works of God being proclaimed. And verse 12 says, all were amazed and perplexed and were saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. I so appreciate this, this phrase when they are saying, though they are hearing what the disciples are saying, and yet they say, what does this mean? Right, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So though they can hear with their ears and see with their eyes what is taking place here on the day of Pentecost, they still need to be given true ears to hear and true eyes to see and to understand the work that God is doing. And yet even in the midst of this, even in the miraculous events on the day of Pentecost, of course there are those who cannot and will not believe. In their sinful rebellion, they begin to mock and ridicule the disciples and saying they are filled with new wine, right? They're just, they're drunk. There's no way this is, is reality. So when we look at Babel and we compare it to this grand reversal at Pentecost, Let's again answer these questions of what does Pentecost reveal to us about the plan of God? So where does Pentecost take place? This takes place in the city of Jerusalem, in the most important city in the entire history of Israel, the holy city of God at the center of the promised land, which housed the very temple of God, of Yahweh, and this city, Jerusalem, becomes the epicenter of the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. And of course, the disciples do not stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, this city where Christ was condemned, and yet now Christ's kingdom is inaugurated and begins to just expand through the power of the Spirit. When does Pentecost take place? Of course, we know this takes place following the ascension of Christ. As Christ ascended back to the right hand of his Father, as 
Psalm 110.1 says that God will make the nations his inheritance and his enemies his footstools. As Christ ascended back to heaven and having, uh, as, as Christ himself says, having bound Satan so that he could no longer deceive the nations. All of these ways in which Christ's ascension back to heaven point us back to the reality of who he is as the reigning and ruling king sitting at the right hand of his father. So this promised coming, this promised Holy Spirit that Christ sent points us, uh, as, as so many things do in Scripture, to the grand, uh, the power of Christ as the king. And who does this take place uh, amongst? Of course, we know these are the disciples. These are the men who, a few months ago at the, 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 the trials of Christ and as he was praying earnestly in the garden, the disciples certainly did not stand by as faithful witnesses and as powerful uh, individuals. They took off. Right? They abandoned their Savior at the moment when he needed their fellowship the most. These were weak vessels, frightened and scared. And yet now they are given divine power from the Spirit to proclaim the gospel through these tongues. And this shows us as, likewise, I will speak for myself at least, a weak and powerless vessel of God who yet has been given the Holy Spirit so that I might proclaim the gospel demonstrates again to me and to all of us that it is not by our own power that we can pursue the Great Commission, but solely through the power of the Spirit. What takes place after the day of Pentecost uh, is in the, the, proceed, or the following uh, verses in Acts chapter 2, we see the birth and the establishment of the local church as 3,000 souls are baptized and added to the church we see that the local church is the purpose of gospel missions. We see that the Spirit is given so that churches might expand across the globe, so that fellowships and congregations would come together, and healthy assemblies of believers is the ultimate goal of missions, that people might be discipled and trained to further the mission. Why did Pentecost take place? And this is the crux of the matter as we consider Babel and Pentecost. As Babel was primarily judgment and yet also God's mercy was present there, we see that Pentecost is holy grace and holy mercy upon God's elect people. And what we can see as we consider Babel and Pentecost tied together through the blood of Christ we can see that God is so highly glorified in the diversity of his people. Right? God could have chosen to just focus specifically on one nation for all of human history. He could, in his sovereignty, have planned that it was only one ethnicity, that it was only one nation, only one culture that he was to deal with. But as we know that everything God does is ultimately for his great glory, the fact that his people are so diverse means that God is glorified in the fact that we all reflect him in different ways. The beautiful diversity of cultures, of peoples, and of tongues 
that fall under the lordship of Christ truly brings God glory. So three points here of of application. First is the plan. As we see that from time and eternity, it has always been God's plan, this inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption that God would have for himself a people and not a people from one specific area or one ethnicity or one culture, but that God would have a people that reflect his glory through their diversity. As the Father, Son, and Spirit are equally co-eternal and, uh, and, and, and one God, and yet there is diversity amongst them as three persons of the Trinity, we see there the dynamics of one people of God and yet diversity amongst us as God's people. And so therefore, if this has been God's plan since eternity past, we must also make this plan our passion. As our hearts are tuned to see what God is doing in this world, it must be our desire to see the plan of God also become how we live our lives and what we seek after. Micah chapter 4, a glorious prophecy from the Old Testament says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of, to the, uh, to the, mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and they, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he shall judge between many peoples, shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. This beautiful prophecy of what will happen one day when Christ makes all things right and every nation is laid to waste and yet the people of God are preserved. The people of God are reunited with their Savior so that no longer shall there be war. No longer shall the nations rage, not only against each other, but against God himself. But this beautiful uh, promise that we look forward to when war and famine and uh, just battle are, are done away with. So that's the plan. And then we see the power, right? The power of Pentecost could only be relevant and can only be understood if we understand the power of the cross of Calvary. The power of the shed blood of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God incarnate, is the power which then sent forth the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the power of the cross of Christ is the only power that we can preach by which mankind will be saved. Right? You may have heard the expression, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Well, that's impossible. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed, and though our lives must reflect the reality of the Spirit within us, we must with our words proclaim the true gospel message. Christ himself was the one who said, Uh, He said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
And now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And there's no other power in this life that we can proclaim except for that power that Christ is drawing all people to himself, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So we have the plan of God, we have the power of God, and finally, the preservation of God. The Holy Spirit who was sent to indwell the early church and to empower them to persevere through, as we know from the rest of the New Testament, just the most horrendous persecution we can possibly imagine. We think just, for example, of the life of the Apostle Paul, who experienced shipwrecks and beatings and just a variety of different persecutions, and the, the testimony of the disciples who, who, who died, most of them by horrendous executions. And yet they did that because it was the Holy Spirit who was preserving them through all of it. And so if we are to take up the mantle of the Great Commission, if we are to boldly proclaim the plan of God through the power of God, we must be relying on the preserving grace of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I thank God, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And now I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We've been given this Holy Spirit who empowers us and preserves us to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. As we seek to follow the, the passion of what God has done throughout redemptive history with jo both the dividing of cultures and the reuniting of cultures through the blood of Christ. And so here now, in conclusion, the words of the Apostle John as he was lifted into heaven and saw a vision on the Isle of Patmos. Revelation chapter 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, it is a mighty work of redemption that you have done. The power of the grace of your salvation overwhelms us. As we look around this room and as we look at the, around this world and we look around at humanity and we see the strife, we see the rebellion against you. We live in a nation that is 
continuously running away from what your word has told us how we ought to live. And yet we know that there is hope. We are not a people who do not have hope. But we see in your word from the very beginning of creation until the final day that you are saving a people for yourself. A people that are diverse in language and culture and ethnicity. A people that are diverse in age and gender. A people that reflect your beauty and your glory. Lord, as men and women here, as we uh, young and old, as uh, different backgrounds and different communities and different families, we thank you for the blood of Christ which has united all of us, for the blood of Christ which has made us pure before you. And Lord, even as we are emboldened to take your gospel to our neighbors and to the nations, it may very well be that there are some in here today that do not know you. And so, Lord, as, as we know that your word does not return void, I ask that would today be the day of salvation if there is anyone in this room hearing these words that you have given us, that their hearts might be softened and that you would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and put your spirit within them, even today. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that you have, in your mercy, revealed your plan have given us your power and are preserving us through your spirit so that the nations may be glad and that Christ might be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is in the great and powerful and matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.